Well, good morning, GPC. <clears throat> let me piggyback. If you came in late and you missed announcements, let me piggyback on Jimmy Walter's announcement, reminding us that next Sunday evening, a week from tonight, we're going to have a church-wide barbecue and hymn sing. And I want to emphasize that our own Ken Bain is going to be cooking Boston butts for that event. I'll be cooking some pork loins for that event. And we're asking that if you come, if you brought a side dish or a dessert, that's all we would ask of you, just to help feed the crowd. And we would love to have a crowd. Uh, Jeremy Casella, an artist with indelible grace, will lead us in song and tell some stories, help us understand some hymns a little bit better. And it's not a concert. I've heard it referred to as a concert. It's really not a concert. A concert is when we would come and just listen to someone sing to us. But it's a hymn sing. We're going to sing together uh, some of these hymns of praise to God. So it's a sweet evening of fellowship. It will be cold. So if you brought your own camp chair and a blanket, you'd probably be glad that you did. If you have any question about how to get there, um, call the church office this week or see us afterwards. We just want to have a great fall event. We've been waiting to get together and do something uh, in the midst of this COVID season. And this is a great thing to do. And it may be a great event for you to invite someone to come to. We're going to try to overdo it on the cooking end of things. Believing that you might invite some neighbors or friends or co-workers. So just think about that. Who might enjoy barbecue and an evening together outdoors? We'd love to help host and create that event for your ministry to your neighbors. Well, for several weeks now, we've been considering the Ten Commandments. <clears throat> and today's the day we come to the Seventh Commandment. So I'm a little nervous. Uh, it's, a, it's a hard conversation but it's a good conversation. Where better than the church to talk about sexuality? Where better than your family and the church for your children to hear about sexuality? The world is telling them more quickly than we can speak a perspective of sexuality. But this morning, I hope to, in the time that we have, begin to touch on a subject that can be the cause of much pain and much hurt, much disintegration of human beings. But I hope we'll also hear the grace of God and the ability to restore brokenness. So that's a tall task. That's much to try to do this morning. But we're considering the law of God, the ten words of God, the ten commandments. And I need to remind you each week... These are not ten ways that we save ourselves. These are not how we justify ourselves before a holy God. These ten words break God's people. And they lead us to Jesus, the one true law keeper, who perfectly kept the law for us, and in him we find redemption for our breaking all ten of God's words all the time, in thought, word, and deed. And I trust you'll see that this morning as we consider what it means to commit adultery and as Jesus will define it in Matthew chapter 5. And then as we look at an example of it from Scripture, 
a stark example. So there are actually three readings this morning. They're all pretty short, but give your attention to God's Word. First from Exodus chapter 20. You shall not commit adultery. Then Matthew chapter 5, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then 2 Samuel chapter 11 of King David, it says... One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. But the man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of of Uriah the Hittite. And then David sent messengers to get her. And she came to him, and he slept with her. Let's pray for God's blessing of our understanding of his word. Lord, would you take these few minutes that we have to consider such a weighty subject, and a subject of so much pain, so much hurt in our world, so much disintegration of people. Lord, would you somehow apply your good news of the gospel to every one of us, that those who are wounded might be healed, those who feel lost in a culture of sexuality might be found, and we pray it together for one another. In Jesus' name, amen. So this sermon, I want you to think for a moment what I'm up against. So it's a sermon on sexuality and adultery. And we're going to largely lean on the life of David and this incident in David's life, which is a very negative example. So this is a sermon in the negative to try to do something positive, right? So we're going to talk about a weighty subject, a hard subject. We're going to look at failure in the life of King David. And yet we're all going to leave here with hope, right? Understanding the grace of God. You see what we're doing. So it's a sermon in the negative. It's about a negative example from David's life. And, you know, we learn from one another from both positive and negative examples I remember talking to college students about this for years. As they would talk about their roommates, they would always have a complaint about their roommate. And I would be the one to say, no doubt, your roommate is teaching you things through the negative, but there's also positive things to affirm, right? Just as in the life of King David, there are positive lessons that we learn from King David. But this morning, we're going to learn from a very negative one a very destructive one, but I trust that it will teach and minister to every one of us. So four points this morning, and the first is this, what adultery is. Um, Not to be overly simplistic and not to say anything unnecessary, but according to the Bible and the sexual categories of the Bible, I'll mention two. 
that in this passage and in this commandment, we're told that we're not to commit adultery. But the Bible talks about fornication too. Fornication is sexual relations between unmarried persons, persons who have no covenant relationship with another person, and they're misusing sexuality outside of the covenant, apart from covenant. And the Bible says that that's evil, it's wicked, it's sinful. Adultery is different. Adultery is the misuse of sexuality between persons who are married, but not with each other, with another person's spouse. So adultery is perverted, just as fornication is perverted, but adultery is a breaking of a covenant promise, which Yahweh, the God of the Bible, takes very seriously. He says His people are to model in the earth that just as He is a true promise-keeping God, so we are to be in everything, but especially with our sexuality. So that's the definition of adultery. And parents, you may need to help your children understand that, but I throw those two categories out for you. There is a sin of fornication for those outside prior to marriage, and there's a sin of adultery for those who are in marriage. And our sermon focuses on adultery. And it does so in a culture that has normalized and glamorized both fornication and adultery. You think of almost any song on the radio, any movie that you watch, any TV show on primetime network television, and there are going to be elements of fornication and adultery in the song lyrics, in the movies, and in the TV shows. And in that way, adultery and fornication have been glamorized. They've been emphasized. And here we are trying to rear children for the Lord, trying ourselves and our families to live for the Lord. And I think it's just helpful to realize we're being bombarded with the opposite view of sexuality that God has said in His commandments are to be true for His people. So let's acknowledge that with our children and with ourselves. We are swimming against the stream. We're swimming against the current in everything that we say on this subject. Number two, adultery, where it begins. Where does adultery begin? I want to be very clear that what we learn from David and what we've learned from the words of Jesus and what we should know from our own experience is sexuality, adultery, does not begin out there. It begins in here. It's not his fault. It's not her fault. It's a problem within. And we're very quick, especially in this culture, to blame but the Bible is showing us, and you'll see in the life of David, that it is a matter of personal responsibility. It's a matter of stewarding what God has given us. So it's not a problem out there. It's not an external problem. Remember, Jesus taught his disciples later in the Sermon on the Mount, don't be concerned about washing the outside of the cup. The problem is the inside of the cup that is unclean. And that's the same point. That's what Jesus is saying. Don't be concerned with the washing of your hands. It's the washing of your heart that God is concerned with. 
It's an internal problem of the heart, which is what Jesus had said in Matthew chapter 5. You've heard that it's said that you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, Jesus said, any man who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery where? In the heart, in the center of who he is. That's why Proverbs says, as a man thinketh in his heart, so he is. So it's the inside, it's the center of our being, it's the heart of our passions. They expose and reveal who we really are. And in that way, Jesus shows that we're all adulterers. So just like last week, I told you as we looked at thou shalt not murder, if you've walked in this morning and if you thought last week, well, I'm not a murderer, well, we found out that if you've ever had anger in your heart towards a person, Jesus said, you're a murderer. And this morning, the same word of the law, that if, if you have ever had misappropriate, unappropriate sexual inclination, you and I are an adulterer. And we are. God's law breaks us before the gospel restores us. And we have to admit and confess the truth of that. Tim Keller speaks of this in a sermon on David and Bathsheba. Um, and I, I'm going to share this just because I think it's so clear. If you think that you have a good heart, that somehow you have been the exception, been in church all your life and you're just a good guy, you're just a good girl, these words from Tim Keller in a sermon I listened to this week are very helpful. I'll read them from the screen. What does this scripture on David and Bathsheba teach us? It reminds us that the seeds of the most terrible atrocities and the capability of committing the worst possible deeds live in every human heart. Even the best people, even people who are converted by God, whoever you are, even the best people who have ever lived are capable of this because the seeds of those worst possible deeds are right now in your heart. That's the teaching of this scripture. What do you think about that? Do you think you escape those seeds? Or can you confess honestly to the Lord, no, I, I'm a corrupt and fallen human being. And apart from the gospel, there is no hope for me. My hope is not in keeping this law. My hope is in Jesus who has perfectly kept this law. You understand, that's a Christian understanding of the law. That's how we look to the law for our sanctification and not for our justification. We have those seeds in our heart, and every one of us needs to know. Just as King David fell, so would we. So would we. Thirdly, adultery, how it progresses... Sexual sin, how it progresses. Now, this is where we get into the life of King David. This is the lesson in the negative, okay? We learn from his ne negative example. And in order to start this, to get the big picture of David, I've actually got to go back and read 2 Samuel 11, verse 1, which I intentionally left out of the reading to emphasize now. This is how the author sets up an understanding of this incident in David's life. 2 Samuel 11, verse 1. It says, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, 
David sent Joab, his military leader, out with the king's men and with the whole Israelite army. And they destroyed the Ammonites and they besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. Now, you've got to understand what that sentence is contextualizing and what it's saying. So listen to it again in pieces. In the spring, when kings go off to war, David sent his military, all of his men and his mighty men, his special forces, but he stayed at home. Good kings go to war with their men, but David stayed home in Jerusalem. The men left, and David stayed with the women and the children. That's what that sentence is saying. Good kings, when good kings go off to war, when they go and do the things they should do, but David remained in Jerusalem with the women and the children. How does adultery progress? Well, what we learn from the lesson in the negative of King David, it's being in the wrong place, it's doing the wrong thing at the wrong time. Now that's very simply put, but those are the three things we see happening in David's life here in the negative. David was remaining in Jerusalem as his men went off to fight for him. David, it says in verse 2, was reclining on his couch bed, probably bored, probably depressed, certainly peerless. Everybody's gone. All the men are gone other than his immediate servants. And it says the wrong time. It's evening time and David gets up off of his couch bed and goes walking on the roof in the evening. Now it is pictured by, comment by commentators to suggest this. Perhaps David went down for a noontime siesta and has awakened... The end of the work day has come and he's walking around on his palace top as everyone else has finished their work day and are making preparations for the next. And there's a real sense, I think, in which you can picture, as I do in my mind, David stumbling around, wiping the seeds from his eyes, in his boxers, in his bathrobe, depressed because he's not done anything all day. And all of his peers are gone. And he's sloppy. And he's lazy. This is David at his worst. Now remember, David at his best was a man after God's own heart. He was the teenager who the Lord used to slay Goliath. He was the one that the people praised as Saul had killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. And here we have somewhere probably 45 to 50 years of age. David has gotten very complacent and very comfortable. And the picture painted in the scriptures is that he's just kind of lying around. Sloppy and lazy and depressed. And he finds himself in a place where instead of, I'll put it this way. 
I remember coming home from college, and you college students will appreciate this. You go home for Christmas break, and you cannot wait to sleep in your own bed and to change schedules, right? So I remember doing that in college, and we would stay up late, and we would sleep late, right? There's a joy in that for a little season. But I remember my dad saying to me and to my brother, boys, don't get your days and your nights backwards. Have you ever heard that? Don't get your days and your nights backwards. Nothing good happens when you get your days and your nights backwards. Your schedule is off. David has gotten his days and his nights backwards. He's sleeping all day. That's what it looks like. And at night, he's up with no peers and nothing good's going to come of it. Okay? So apply that to your own life. David here seems to be lacking wisdom and discipline. What are two things every man needs, those who came to the men's fellowship last week? Wisdom and discipline and a whole lot of grace, which will come at the end of the passage. So that's what we see of David. He's in the wrong place. He's doing the wrong thing. He's doing it at the wrong time. Good kings go off to war. Good kings, real kings, lead from the front, not from the rear. Real kings don't remain behind with the women and children. Real kings don't have their days and their nights backwards. Real kings don't become soft spiritually and physically. And so David is wandering aimlessly on the rooftop with nothing to do at the end of his day. And he sees he has a glance of a beautiful woman bathing. And you may have heard, as I did as a child growing up, that don't let the glance become a gaze, right? Don't let the glance become a gaze. But David, in his slothfulness and his sloppiness, he lets that glance become a gaze. And it owns his heart. It possesses his heart. And at this point, David, he won't be stopped. He won't be deterred. There's no one in his life. All the men are gone. And so he says to one of his servants, Who is that? Get her for me. She looks good to me. And the servant pushes back as much as a servant could to a king, I suppose, and says what? That's the daughter of Eliam. That's the husband of Uriah the Hittite which seems to indicate that he's saying, David, you know who that is. You know dad, and you know husband. Now what we know from other passages in Scripture, David had his 30 mighty men, his special forces that were dear to him, that protected him. They were his fiercest fighters. We're given the names of those mighty men elsewhere in Scripture. If you want to know two of the names of the men who were closest to David and fiercest fighting for David? There was one named Eliam. There was one named Uriah the Hittite. And when that servant says, that's, that's Bathsheba, husband of Uriah, daughter of Eliam, doesn't matter to David because she looked good. And all of his peers are gone. There's no accountability in his life. And he says, bring her to me. He has an appetite. He has a hunger that he won't deny at that moment. 
Now, process this with me and apply it to yourself. We are a people of appetites. We are a people of, of hunger and thirst. We just sang about it in our hymn, Satisfied, right? That we hunger and thirst for the wrong things. And we need God to quench and satisfy our appetites and our thirsts so that we don't try to satisfy those on false things, on lesser things. And so we need wisdom and discipline because we're a people of appetites. And in a sin-broken world, you know what sinners do. They'll let those appetites go unrestrained. And strangely, those appetites can then consume us. They control us. And that's what you see happening here in the life of David. He has no peers. He has no accountability. But he's got a strong appetite. And we know from the rest of Scripture, David had an appetite for women. He had many wives. He did it anyway. The Bible didn't give him permission to do it, but he did it anyway because he had a strong appetite and he would not take no for an answer. And here's where we come to our fourth point of the sermon and the hard one to apply. Death by appetite. Our appetites, if they're unrestrained, will kill us, literally. I've told you this story before, and I love this illustration, and it's a graphic illustration, but bear with me for a moment. It's called How to Kill an Arctic Wolf. Some of you remember this story. How to Kill an Arctic Wolf. And the story goes like this, that in the Arctic, an Eskimo might take a very sharp, double-edged knife. And with that knife, he would kill a small animal. And he would bathe that sharp blade in blood and let it freeze. And he'd bathe it in blood again and put a second coat of blood on there. And he'd bathe it again until you had essentially a blood popsicle. And then they would plant that sharp-edged blade deep on a stick in the snow to make it secure and then just walk away. And the smell of that blood in the Arctic would eventually draw a wolf. And a wolf smelling that blood would come to that blood and begin licking that blood popsicle until it got to the blade. And once it reached the blade, the wolf felt the immense pleasure of warm blood and consuming lifeblood, not knowing that it was devouring itself. With every lick, with pursuing its pleasure, and with its appetite dominating him, the wolf was killing itself and would eventually bleed out. And I don't know of a, of a more powerful illustration for how sexuality and other sins, how they really are that very thing. It's man, it's woman giving in to whatever urge, whatever appetite, not realizing that it's actually consuming us. It's destroying us. It's disintegrating us. It's robbing our own life source. And that's what David is doing here. He doesn't know it. 
But sin has done a few things in his life. Sin has isolated him from God's people. Sin has made him numb to God's law. Oh, he knows God's law. He can quote God's law. He's the author of the Psalms, most of them. But he's numb to God's law. And now sin begins to pervert that appetite that God had given him. God had made him with a sexual appetite to be rightly used. But he's king. And he'll satisfy that appetite however he chooses at the moment. And then sin, what we see in David's life is sin will selfishly use and abuse power and people to satiate the hunger. David had become numb to God's law. He knew better. He was surrounded with the truth of God's law. He knew the Ten Commandments, but he was numb to it. He was so used to it. He had so many memories of God's goodness and God's nearness to him, but it was easy to grow numb, easy to grow comfortable. Is that true of you in any way? Have you found yourself able to grow numb to God's law? You know what's right. You know what's wrong. You know what's foolish. But you just write yourself a permission slip to do it anyway, to say it anyway, to go there anyway. That's how we are. And the scriptures have given us this negative example from David's life, which really serves as a kind of mirror for us to look in. That, oof, as ugly as that is in David's life, we see it in ourselves. Because like David, we're fallen, sinful human beings. None of us has escaped the reach of the fall. Every one of us is a sin-ruined mess. Not all messes are the same. But every one of us is a sin-ruined mess. You may know this story, and time doesn't allow for me to go into this as I wish, but you know that David's sin with Bathsheba now compounds. And in an effort to cover up what would now be a pregnant Bathsheba, David has to conspire, he has to create a way to make it look like Uriah is the father of this baby. Because by the way, once you bring a woman up to your quarters and you're the king of Israel and she becomes pregnant when all the men are gone, it doesn't take a genius to realize something has gone awry. And so David is trying to find a way to cover this up. And without going into the length of the detail, he conspires the most wicked of plans where he would have a good man, one of his mighty men, put to death. He would allow that to happen in a chilling way. And it would haunt him for the rest of his life. Not just the sin of adultery, but do you understand that David, the man after God's own heart, the man who had hidden God's word in his heart so that he might not sin against him, David in this incident, he's coveted another man's wife. He's stolen another man's wife. He's committed adultery with another man's wife. And now he's murdered a husband. He's broken half of the ten words of God in this one incident. That's why Tim Keller says in that sermon, he says, look, those seeds, if they're in David's heart, you got to know that they're in your own heart. So we don't look at David and condemn him. We look at David and say, oh my word, if this could be true of David, 
this could be true of me. This could affect my family, even as it has affected David's family. And there's another sermon there. What did this sin of murder and adultery, what did it really lead to? Did it really disintegrate the man? Did it disintegrate his family? Did it disintegrate the kingdom on earth, the kingdom of Israel? And the answer is yes, it did. We'll look at that another day. But it, did, it disintegrated these people. Well, that's the heavy word, right? We're looking at a negative event in the life of King David, but trying to leave with a positive example. And that positive example, this final word I'll share with you, is how God deals with all this wickedness in David's life. And the answer to that is in 2 Samuel chapter 12, which I won't take the time to read, but I will tell you that the way the Lord deals with it is he sends somebody to David. And his name is Nathan. The Lord sends a prophet to speak a word of confrontation into David's life. He confronts David in his sin. He tells him, you're the man. He tells him this long parable, and I won't go into that, but he basically says, David... You are in sin, and David is broken. David is broken because the Lord has showed that he knows him through and through. And so what we need is wisdom, what we need is discipline, but what we really need is grace. We need the grace of a Nathan who will confront us in our sin and help us to stop pretending that we're getting away with it. That's what the Lord does in David's life. He sends him the grace of confrontation. He does it in the person of Nathan. And a few quick things to help understand how this grace works. In Psalm 32, I don't have this printed for you, but in Psalm 32, we have David's own recollection of this event. And this is that psalm that we use sometimes in worship where he says that, when he was not faithful to the Lord, he was an undone man. He was a disintegrated man. His strength was sapped like under the heat of summer. He was depressed. He was broken because he was in rebellion against God. But then we're told that, and it literally says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me, and my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. But when I acknowledged my sin to you, when I stopped pretending, and I didn't cover up my iniquity, I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. That's what happens when Nathan will confront Repentance becomes possible. And then reflecting on the same event in Psalm 51, David says, Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed. He's talking about Uriah. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. So the grace in the passage is that the Lord, who had made covenant with David and had purposes for David to use David, 
Even though David has become this middle-aged man who was sloppy and lazy and depressed, doing the wrong thing in the wrong place at the wrong time, God had made promise to David. God had made covenant with David. And he would send a Nathan to stir in him repentance, to call him back home. That's the nature of our covenant-keeping God. He doesn't let his sheep wander for long. Those he loves, he sends a Nathan to. The question is, how do you respond to Nathan? Can someone confront you in your sin? Can someone speak to you about your sin? Or are you going to keep them at an arm's distance? Don't go there with me. The nature and posture of the human heart is to push Nathan away. But in God's grace, he softened David to receive that word and his life was changed. The kingdom continues. Though harmed, the kingdom continues because God is faithful to his promises. I'll close with this from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul says this, So if you think you're standing firm, you think you don't have an issue with something like this, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. People of God, we're living in a sin-perverse culture, a sexually perverse culture, and we have sin-perverted and sexually perverted hearts. That's what Jesus says. What hope is there for a young man to keep his way pure, as the psalmist says? For a young woman, for a boy, for a girl, for a man, for a woman. It's the grace of God. It's obedience with discipline, but it's a need for a whole lot of grace. God has shown grace to his people even in the area of sexual sin. Let's pray that we would be keepers of His law and that His grace would be very near to us when we're disobedient. Let's pray. Lord, that's our prayer. It's one of confession and admission that we are great sinners. But Lord, You are a great Savior. So would You be very near to Your people, young and old, Thank you for your law. Thank you for the beauty of it. Thank you for how it tries to spare us from hurt and harm and from being disintegrated in this life. So Lord, help us to walk faithfully with you, to seek to honor and obey your word. And we ask this and we pray it with a great need for grace in Jesus Christ. Amen.